Father, thank you for your goodness. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, I want to thank you for this morning. And Father, I know that in your sovereignty, each person that's here this morning, you have something to share to us. And Lord, I want to thank you for Steve. I want to thank you for this message that I believe you have given him. And I pray an anointing and a blessing on him as he shares that it could be truth and that, Father, we could receive it. And so, Lord, I just pray that this this time would just, um, you would just manifest your presence to us and we would hear, we would understand, and we would apply, and, Father, that you would transform our hearts because we know you can do that. Thank you for this moment. I pray a blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you, Steve. Thank you. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Um, so I agree with what Dill was saying. Thankfulness is such a huge part of our Christian journey. Uh, we can always see what we don't have, right? But seeing what God has given us um, and dwelling on that is very important. I'm very thankful this morning for the weather as well. I'm thankful to be here with you all. I'm thankful to be just two weeks away from our little girl appearing here, so very thankful for that. So this morning I want to talk about being justified by faith, and I know it's a lot of things that we already know, and it's more of a reminder that it really is by faith in Christ that we're made right in God's sight. But if I were to ask you, what does it take to make you right in God's sight, what would the answer be? Would it be performing more than five good deeds per week? Maybe thinking about God at least 50% of the time? Donating to at least one ministry per month? Giving food to a needy person daily while wearing your mask, of course? Uh, Praying at least twice daily and making sure it's by a window somewhere? Or is it by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? What are we saved from? You know, there's a lot of bumper stickers, you know, Jesus saves, or you might see that somewhere, but what are we saved from? What did Jesus rescue us from? So Jesus saves us from guilt to righteousness. Every person has sinned against God. God is a just and holy God, and God always punishes sin. In fact, God set in in place from the very beginning that whenever sin occurred, Blood had to be shed. And not just any animal, it had to be like the perfect lamb. And the reason for that, of course, was it was a shadow and type of Christ coming to to really make that sacrifice for us. Jesus saves from the wrath of God to the love of God. Romans 5.9 says, We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So, even though God is a loving God, God does pour out his wrath upon sin. And then Jesus saves us from complete separation to fellowship with God. Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So Jesus died on our behalf. 
and through faith and repentance, we can go from being God's enemy to being a friend of God. Isn't that amazing? And then Jesus saves from slavery to sin and, and saves us to freedom. We often think of ourselves as being free, right? People will say, I'm free to do whatever I want. And the Bible says, though, that we're, we're set free from slavery to sin. And often doing whatever we want leads to sin, right? That is the sin that might look good on the outside, but really um, change us up on the inside. And then, of course, Jesus saves us from eternal death to eternal life. And eternity is such a, a long, long time. So, I mean, that's an amazing thing. We often hear that, right? From eternal death to eternal life. That, that gulf, that distance between those two things are, are, is so vast. And Jesus came to make a way that we can spend eternity with him. So defining um, a term here, I'll be referring to the finished work of Jesus. And what I mean by that is the perfect life he lived, fulfilling all the prophecies regarding himself, and ultimately the price that he paid on the cross. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. And what did he mean? Because obviously the gospel work is still going forth at this point. So what did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? We know that God is still in the business of saving people until the end of time, right? But salvation's plan is finished. There will never be a version 2.0. This is the one we have. And this is the only one that will ever be given, the gospel that Jesus came and brought. So, of course, Jesus came and fulfilled what God's followers were looking forward to for so many years. I wanted to think about some of those and realize that there was so much that they did, that they literally spent hours and days and weeks of their time that was looking forward to a time when the Messiah would come and truly free them, and truly redeem them, and be the perfect lamb for the atonement of sin. So, of course, we already mentioned the perfect lambs, very specific instructions about how to sacrifice, what to do with that lamb, putting blood over your door, and that was so that the death angel would pass over. The Israelites looking to a serpent on the pool, right? When they were, they got bit by these poisonous snakes, and then very interesting twist in that story was when God told, told Moses to, to erect a bronze snake, right? So you're, you're poisoned, you have bites all over your body, you're about to die, and someone comes running in and says, you got to look up at the, at the serpent that they put up there, and then you're going to be instantly healed, right? What do you think people did with that? It's too simple, right? I'm sure some people laughed. I'm sure some people said, I'm not moving, I'm going to enjoy my show until, you know, I die. Like, I'm not moving. Like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. But the people that went outside and looked up at that serpent actually got healed. It was amazing. And that, Jesus referred to later in the New Testament. He said, as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up 
so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. You know, priests were a mediator between people and God, right? And that was really interesting because when Jesus came, he became that perfect high priest. And we now have access to enter boldly into what God has bought for us. Isn't that amazing? You know, and again, all those priests were a type and a shadow for Jesus coming and making a way that we can enter in. So scripture also makes it very simple. And one example of this, and often I'll have to give an example because there's so much in the New Testament that speaks to this that we won't be able to cover all of it. But one example would be Romans 10, verse 9 to 11. It says, if you, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Our faith was not meant to be something that's only held in private, right? It was meant to be openly declared. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. And I think part of that openly sharing our faith um, is part of the reason that Satan hates baptism, right? Water baptism, because it's, a, it's an open declaration that we're following Christ no matter what. Like, we've decided, and we're willing to tell everybody that we've decided Christ, to follow Christ, I'm sorry. So when we find that freedom in the finished work of Christ, we will want to share that with other people. If we truly have found freedom, if you would have the cure for cancer, for every type of cancer, and people would start coming to you and would actually get healed every single time and be completely restored to health, they would tell people about it. They really would. Imagine being that person that they would say, hey, you have four weeks to live, and you would go to somebody that has a cure for cancer. And imagine, who would you tell? How excited would you be? So if you want to turn to a Bible passage, you can turn to Galatians 2, and that will be the main Bible passage for today. Uh, Paul, of course, is speaking here, and he says, uh, 14 years later, I went, and again, Galatians 2, starting in verse 1. 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. I was there because God had revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure we were in agreement for fear that my efforts had been wasted and that I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. So Paul's main purpose in Galatians was really to rebuke them for having started by faith, now turned that into something that they were perfecting by their own works 
or they were turning from faith to trusting in their own works um, to save them. Over time, they focused more on added regulations and, you know, how you could how you could do it on your own rather than by faith in Christ and by trusting in what Jesus had paid for them. Continuing in verse 4, even that question, which was about Titus being circumcised, came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. So they didn't refuse to give in because it was too hard. They didn't refuse to give in because they just didn't feel like doing that, what was trying to be imposed on them. But they refused to give in because of how it would have changed the gospel message. And they wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for the people that they were ministering to. You know, sometimes we need to refuse to give in to what other people would want for us, for our lives, if it's not what God would want for us. Of course, we need to hear the people, especially people that we're walking with, like our brothers and sisters. I firmly believe we need to hear when people come and talk to us. I'm not talking about that. But there's things that people want for us that's not what God wants. There's ways that we can get distracted by things that are not what God wants for us. There's ways that our attention could turn from the finished work of Christ and from what God did to us and could turn toward only what we're doing to be made right in God's sight. Continuing in verse 6, And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. I'll see if that happens after I'm done here. (laughs) But, But by the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked in Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked in me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift that God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas Barnabas, and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we would keep on helping the poor which we have always been eager to do. I think those leaders had great heart, right? They got the importance of the gospel and what God was doing among the Gentiles, and they supported it. And then in verse 11, continuing, But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from those people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Paul's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, 
have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? So in this example, Peter really showed what, what happens when we start caring more about what other people think than what God thinks. Because in this instance, he changed his belief based on who was in the room. Have we ever done that? Like changing what we're doing or even what we believe based on who we're talking to or who's in the room, depending on what they're carrying and maybe how we, how we see them. But it hurts people. It really hurts people when we often think we're helping people when we're people pleasers, right? But it hurts people. I think it's much better and much less painful for us to adjust people's expectations of us than for them to realize at some point that we are misleading them all along. But the bigger problem with what Peter did is it went directly against the gospel message. By his actions, he was preaching a different gospel and was actually leading other people astray. But he was preaching a different gospel than what God had given at the time, and that included the Gentiles. And then continuing in verse 15, You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. So we're made right. It's very clear there in that passage. We're made right because of our faith in Christ. It's not because, it's not because we did something special or are somebody special in that sense. And no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. That's interesting. You know, they had the law, and it was in place for a reason, but a huge purpose of the law was to show us that we could never do it without Christ. We could never be enough. We could never pay enough. We could never overcome enough to do it on our own. I said I love the warm weather, right? <laughs> Continuing in verse 17. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would it mean that Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So even though he died to the law, he also died to himself, right? It's not that he died to the law so that I could do whatever I want to do now, right? He died to the law. He died to himself. His old self was crucified with Christ, and therefore it was 
Christ living and coming through him that enabled him to accomplish the things that God wanted to do. In verse 21, he says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. And that's a mic drop there. I would, if I would have one, I would probably drop it. Because that verse, you know, if, if we can be made right with God on our own strength, by our own intellect, by making the, all the right choices, then there would have been no reason for Christ to die to make that sacrifice for us. And I think the reason it's so offensive to God when we think that we can be justified by things that we do rather than what he has done is we're spitting in the face of that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for each one of us. He paid the price. He paid that price that we could never pay. Did Jesus die in vain in your life? Did Jesus die without any effect? Was there no cause for him to need to die? Was that unnecessary? Or was it the only way, the only sacrifice, the only perfect lamb that could really make us right with God and right in God's sight? And that's why I say we never move on from the cross we only move into a deeper understanding and appreciation of what Jesus bought for us. And I would say we shouldn't listen to those that minimize the cross of Christ. And we should definitely turn away from teaching that diminishes the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross to purchase our freedom, and not just for us, but for everybody around us. There's so many people that have not heard the message of the gospel. And we cannot get bored by this, by this message. Jesus did it. Christianity is not all about ourselves. God didn't come to save us so we can then go and live life as if it were all about ourselves. You know, some people say you can't love others until you learn to love yourself. Not true. The answer to condemnation and self-hate is not self-love and not self-adoration. The answer is to look to Jesus. The answer is to turn our eyes away from ourselves and look to the finished work of Christ and what he did on our behalf. The answer is to look more fully to Jesus, to worship him, to turn our attention to him, and then also loving, loving the people around us. That is the most fulfilled life. Scripture is very clear that we're justified by faith. A good friend and mentor to our family uh, years ago, he would always say that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that has always stuck with me. Um, It's only by grace, it's only through faith, and it's only in Christ alone. So what keeps us from trusting in the finished work of Jesus for our salvation? I'm glad you asked. Um, So this is by no means an exhaustive list, but here are four areas in closing. 
Number one would be thinking that we're just smarter. We can figure this out on our own. Somehow, I must be special, right? Not realizing that of the billions of people that live on the earth, we could have been any other person. We didn't choose what family we were born into. We didn't choose the education that we had. We didn't choose the opportunities, really, that we had for the most part. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done so that no one can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He's the one molding and shaping the play. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So when we boast about our salvation as if we would have achieved it, we're showing that our faith is really in ourselves, not in God. And when we complicate the gospel to make ourselves look smarter, it really um, doesn't accomplish God's purposes and keeps people in darkness. We are not the smart ones, right? We're pointing to somebody. Number two is, um, and what keeps us from trusting in the finished work of Jesus, is comparing ourselves with others. Do we have a marker up here? Oh, we don't have any? I need to grab one out of the classroom. <laughs> cool. Could someone grab one a while? And I'll come back to that. Sorry, I should have checked that before I was assuming we had one. You know, it's easy to start trusting in ourselves, right, when we compare ourselves to somebody else that might be at a worse spot than where we are. We often compare our good intentions with what we know about other people, right, and make some sort of assumption as to where we are based on that. I love, I love what Kasi Hinn has recently posted. He said, there are a few things more detrimental to church health, team health, and spiritual health than being one who thinks you're the smartest or most anointed in the room. If you aim to be the best, be the best servant. And I really appreciate that. So the thing about comparing ourselves... Thanks, Miguel, by the way. So we all know somebody that might be here, right? And of course, they have a frown. Um, we know somebody that might be about right at the line here. And I'm not sure where we're placing ourselves on this scale. But as I'm talking about it, just think about where you, how you view yourself. Where are you on the scale of bad, average, good, or great? And then we might even have a person that's you know, really, really up there, right? Awesome person, great guy. 
Um, we often compare ourselves to other people, right? And if, you're, if you see yourself here, you'll probably be looking down on somebody that's here, right? But what we don't realize when we're doing this and when we're comparing ourselves to other people is that God's standard is up there. And none of us are meeting that. Nobody in this room is, is meeting God's standard. So the question that I have for you, if you were to draw yourself up here, where would you put yourself? So number three is trusting in our culture or our heritage. John the Baptist told the Pharisees, in Matthew 3, 9, he said, don't just say to each other, we're safe. We're descendants of the Anabaptists, or I mean Abraham, sorry. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Isn't that interesting? They were really trusting in their family, where they had been born. They didn't have a choice in that, but over time, they were really trusting in those things. I think we can be thankful for, you know, good influence for the way our parents raised us without trusting in those things to make us right in God's sight. And of course, we see that with the Pharisees, right? They were already good. They didn't need Jesus when he came. And they were trusting, really trusting in themselves. Which goes along with number four, trusting in the things that we do for God to make us right with him. So God's word makes it very clear that any works that we do that's not motivated by a love of God is nothing but filthy rags. Philippians 3, 8, and 9 says this, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and be made one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. You know, when we try to become righteous on our own, Satan really has us digging through empty pockets, right? Trying to pay our costs, and we never can. We never will be able to pay the costs or work hard enough to earn that. Faith often is too simple. It's too easy. If it would be harder, there would probably be more people going for it. Right? If there were things that you could do, levels that you could achieve, if it would depend on our smarts, it would probably make a lot more sense to many people. The interesting thing in the life of Jesus, though, have you ever thought about this? He didn't try to make it easy. He actually often put barriers there. So people would come and want to follow him, and he would tell them to go and sell everything they've got. Like, you know, isn't that kind of not the best idea? If somebody wants to follow you and it's like, man, this is a ripe opportunity. Maybe as we go along, I can transition him to, you know, to how I want him to be. But in, in many cases, Jesus did not make it easy. He would challenge them about the cost. You know, there's, there's no place for us to sleep, like we're constantly traveling, we're, you know, he would challenge people with that cost. 
And he would even speak in parables so that only those that were truly open to the gospel would understand it. You know, we try to make it as simple and plain as possible. It's interesting that Jesus didn't do that in every case. But my opinion is that Jesus really wanted it to be by faith. For anyone that comes to him to truly do so by faith. In one town, he said that he had done a whole bunch of miracles there. And people still were not believing. And so he wasn't going to just continue um, giving them a sign when people were not operating in faith. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says this. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God saw it in his wisdom that the world would never know him through human wisdom... He used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who seek for signs from heaven. And it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human might. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose what the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Essentially, we didn't do it. God didn't have a contest and pick the smartest people to be on his team. That didn't happen. God chose a lot of weak, not... um, not strong people, right, who knew that the only chance that they had was to operate in the power of God. The only chance that they had was by the grace of God. I love that last verse. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And one more verse in Galatians. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and this is in chapter 3 now, verse 9, And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. So there's far too many references in scripture to to really go through and dig through each one that talks about justification by faith. Here's just a couple more short examples. In Romans 4, 5... It says, and to the one who does not work, but but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Or in John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
one that we're very familiar with. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. It's very simple in the scripture. And sometimes, almost again, almost too simple. If it would be harder, it would probably make more sense. If we would have to climb Mount Everest, there would probably be more people doing it. But it's so simple. It's not easy always to live in our Christian life, to live a Christian life. But of course, God gives us the power to do so by faith. But it's very simple. Has anyone heard of the KISS principle, K-I-S-S? Keep it simple, saint. Um, I changed one of the words there. But I, I really think the gospel is very simple. We need to keep it about Jesus. We need to not complicate the gospel. You know, there's so many ways to get distracted, but the world is waiting again for someone to share this good news with them. There are so many, even right here, who have never heard the name of Jesus. So Jesus paid the price completely, and our faith is in his finished work. That sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross and the price he paid is enough. If anyone's here that doesn't know the incredible grace of Jesus, and if you haven't accepted that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross and fully surrendered yourself to him, if you haven't looked to Jesus by faith and total surrender, I would invite you to do so today. You know, he will welcome you with open arms when you turn to him. He will welcome you into his family when you turn to him. And you can be made totally clean, totally righteous, totally justified in the sight of God by faith in Christ. So th I think our response to this incredible grace this incredible sacrifice that Jesus made for us can only be to give ourselves completely to him. We worship, we live for him, we make him known to others because if we found a great treasure again, we will share that with the people around us. So I've asked PJ and his team to, I guess Darlene, if you can um, sing this all together here now, that would be wonderful. Thank you all. Saying thank you, Jesus, for Jesus. Thank you. All right. There's two songs. Thank you, Jesus, and Jesus, thank you. But uh, yeah, just thanks for sharing that, Steve. And that's something that I thought of a lot already. Like, if it would be harder, more people do it. Like, it seems 
Too simple. Too good to be true. <laughs> mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary you the perfect holy one crush your son who drank the bitter God reserved for me your blood has washed away my sin Jesus thank you the Father's wrath completely satisfied Jesus thank you once your enemy now seated at your table Jesus thank you I've been brought near Your enemy You've made your friend Pouring out the riches Of your glorious grace Your mercy and your kindness Know no end Your blood has washed away my sin wrath completely satisfied Jesus thank you once your enemy now seated at your table Jesus thank you lover of my Jesus, thank you. 